Tonight we're going to talk about drifting. And when I think of drifting, there's something that comes to my mind. Check out this video. Now that is pretty sick nasty. Anybody got some anxiety right now thinking about that? You know what I'm saying? Like my heart's racing. Like now here's the thing. When I think about drifting, that is the only time I can think of where drifting is something positive. In fact, when you think of drifting, oftentimes it has a negative connotation with it. So let me give you an example. When I was in high school, I remember my buddy, he kind of lived like, like if you, if you came out of my driveway and you went down the street, and then you had to kind of go on this main road and then down his long driveway to his house. And so I remember one day I drove over to his house in my, on my bike, and, and I was coming back home, and I got out on the main street. And it's sort of like just a straight, flat stretch uh, leading over to where my, uh, my road was to my house. And so I get out on the street. I check. No cars are coming. I start going, and I'm pedaling away. I'm pedaling away. And I think that I hear a car behind me. And so, and so you know, I'm driving along, so I just kind of keep one hand on. I just look over my shoulder, and I'm just kind of looking on my shoulders. I'm going because it's just a, a straight path. And the next thing you know, I was like, wham, and I go fly, something hit me like a ton of bricks, and I go flying off my bike, onto my back, my bike keeps going down the street, I'm like, I'm like, my chest is hurting, my, my whole body's hurting, I'm like trying to pick myself up off the ground, and what happened was, is when I was driving my bike, and I was looking back over, I began to drift off the road, and I didn't realize it, and, and, and right as I drifted off the road, I hit a mailbox, right here in my chest, and the mailbox, like, I took the mailbox out. It went flying. I broke the wood of the mailbox. Like, I'm telling you, this was like a serious collision. I thought I was dead. I thought a car had hit me. Like, I had no clue. And when I think of, and when I think of drifting, that is, that's kind of what I think about. I think about drifting off the road. Maybe, you know, someone who's texting and you start to drift off the road or because we don't text and drive, right? And, uh, or you're falling asleep at night and you begin to drift off the road and, or, or you drift to sleep in class or, or whatever. Anytime you think of drifting, it typically carries a negative connotation. Or when you see people drift in life. You see marriages drift apart. Oftentimes when we see things like that, it has a negative connotation to it. And I want to give you a definition of drifting. I want to give you a definition of drift because we're going to talk about drift and how that applies to our life. So here it is. Here's the definition that I want to give you. I think it will be on the screen. You can write it down. Drift is a continuous, slow movement from where you want to be to where you don't want to be. Drift is a continuous slow movement from where you want to be to where you don't want to be. Here's the truth. Every person in this room has a place that they want to be. 
a place in their life that they want to go, a place in their life that they want to be, whether that's contentment, happiness, whether that's friendships, relationships, whatever that is, we all have this place in our life successful where we want to be. But the truth is that drift causes us to go from the place that we want to be to the place where we don't want to be. And we see this happen all the time in people's lives. Drift takes people out. People don't just wake up one day as an addict. They become addicted to something. Addiction sets in over time. Slow, continuous movement away from where you want to be to where you don't want to be. And so it begins with just, you know, you're at a party and, you know, hey, man, like you're hanging out with some friends and you just kind of have like a drink or two. And, and then, then it becomes every couple weeks you're hanging out with some buddies and you're partying and, you know, it's just a toke or it's just a, it's just a drink or two here and there. And then, then it becomes more frequent and then, and then it becomes more and more frequent until eventually you become addicted, until addiction begins to set in. The same goes with pornography or whatever. You know, you're looking at it at the computer just a few times here and there. And then all of a sudden it's every day and then it begins to, to control your life. And you begin to looking for opportunities in, in, in different places to do it. I can give you so many examples of where addiction can set in. And it always is a slow movement, continuous slow movement. Over days, over weeks, over months, over years. Of you drifting away from where you want to be to where you don't want to be. I even see this in relationships. Believers and Christians get in a relationship together. And they say, hey man, we want to commit to purity in our relationship. We want our relationship to honor God, and so we're going to keep it pure. We're going to set some boundaries up. And you do that, and you're sticking to it. But then what happens is along the way, you begin to drift. You begin to make small compromises. You begin to move the boundary line from one place to another until eventually, all of a sudden, like people don't just one day say, you know what, we don't want our relationship to honor God, and we're just going to start, you know, making our relationship impure. They don't, they don't do that. They begin to drift into it. So they become stuck, they become trapped, they begin to make it a part of their life. I give you so many examples of where people start to drift. What about church? People typically that are committed in church and come to church every week and their attendance is strong and, and they serve and, and all that kind of stuff, those people don't just one day stop going to church. It starts with drift. It starts with prioritizing other things in their life. It starts with different things here and there. And they start to miss a week here and a week there. And then there's two weeks here and two weeks there. And the next thing you know, they've drifted so far that, that, that all of a sudden they're just never coming anymore. I can give you example after example after example of drift. But I think that drift is one of the most powerful temptations that the enemy uses to attack us. And here's why. It's sneaky. It's sneaky because we don't know that we're in trouble until it's too late. Like I was completely comfortable looking over my shoulder, completely happy until I hit that mailbox. That's why I have students tell me that are, you know, I mean, almost on a weekly basis, that are regularly doing drugs, and, and I'll talk to them, and they're open with me about it, and we have a conversation. Yeah, man, but I can control it. I got this lick, man. I can control it. Like I can put it down whenever I want to. Yeah, yeah, but this is what you understand. You're drifting. You're drifting, and, and you can control it until it controls you. See, you think that you're safe because you're still in the drifting zone and all you're doing is looking over your shoulder, but it's only a matter of time before you hit that mailbox or you get smacked. And that's the truth. And we see it happen all the time in life. We see it happen all the time with our friends. And we see it happen in our lives as well. I think one of the greatest temptations for us as high school students is drift. 
And what makes this also so powerful is that every person in this room is susceptible to it, including myself, including all the adult leaders in here. And every student in this room is susceptible to it. The moment that you think you got it, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. And we've been in this series called Kings, and we're in the third week of the series, the last week of the series. And what we've been doing in this series is we've been going and looking at some of the sort of minor kings, these, these men that, that, uh, that uh, led the nation of Israel, the people of God that are written about in uh, First and Second King, uh, Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles of the Old Testament. And, uh, and, uh, and these kings, uh, some of these kings, man, followed God and did some amazing things for God. And, and what we do is we open up the Bible and we look at these stories of these men and these women that lived before us and they become mentors to us in our life. We get to learn from their mistakes. We get to learn from their victories. We get to see how God used them and it inspires us in our own personal faith. That's why it's so important for us to be in God's word so that these stories can inspire us, so we can grow from it, so we can get something out of it. And and so tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to dive in a story of a king named Asa. And if you got a Bible, you can open up the second Chronicles chapter 14. If you don't, there's one under your seat. You can pull that out. It's on page 4 40. And uh, as you're opening it up there, I want to give you just a little bit of a background of what's going on. Basically, King Asa is uh, he's the king of, of Judah. Now, I talked to you guys the, the first week about um, uh, the first week of this series about how uh, there was the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel existed in that nation. And then after King Solomon, the nation split because of Solomon's son Rehoboam was a punk and tried to oppress some of the people. And so now the nation is split, and there's a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom is Israel, and the southern kingdom is Judah. Now, there were 20 kings in Israel, and every one of them was wicked and evil. And in the southern kingdom, there were 20 kings, and eight of them were good. Asa would be considered in the category of one of those kings that was actually good. And we've been looking at some of those good kings. Jehoshaphat the first week, Josiah last week, and, and Asa this week. And what we see in these stories, what we see about Asa is, is that when Asa was growing up, before he became king, he got to live under the rule of another king who actually followed God and believed in God. And so Asa watched this other king actually defeat an army that outnumbered his army two to one because he leaned on God and he, he chased after God and God's favor was on him. And so Asa grew up with some deep convictions about what he believed about God. And this is extremely important because you want to catch this in the story. Check this out in verse 2 of of chapter 14. It says, As Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord, he removed the foreign altars in the high places, he smashed the sacred stones, and he cut down the Asheroth poles. Let me explain what's happening here. Asa has made this deep commitment to follow God. He's passionate. He's chasing after God. He, he, is, he is done right in the eyes of the Lord. And so his character is in the right place. And one of the things that you find when your heart is in the right place with God is that you hate sin. You can't stand sin because you know that sin separates. You know that sin hurts people. You know that sin brings about death, the Bible tells us. And so, so sin is not a good thing. And so what Asa does is he goes and he begins to destroy all of the false idols. So the Asheroth poles were like a totem pole that people would, would worship before and worship as God. And, and so Asa was like, hey, man, there's only the one true God, the God in heaven, the God Almighty. And so he would go and destroy all of these places of worship that were idolatry against God. And he was doing this stuff because he wanted to protect 
the temptation that there was for the people to go after these idols. This is a real temptation. In fact, almost every king in Israel, the northern part, fell into the temptation of idol worship. And almost all the kings of the southern kingdom did as well. And what I think is cool about Asa is Asa said, listen, I don't want that temptation to be for me in my life or for my kids' lives. And so Asa goes out and he begins to destroy these things. He removes the temptation from his life. This is what I think is applicable to you in just that small little passage right there. What are the temptations and the things that are pulling at you in your life that you know that are around you that you need to remove? See, this is what I found to be true. Asa didn't just hate sin for the nation. He hated sin for himself. He didn't hate anyone's sin more than he hated his own sin. And there comes a point in every person's life where we have to say, man, I hate the sin that's in my life. We've heard the statement before, you know, uh, or some of you may have heard the statement before, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. I, I like it said this way better. Love the sinner and hate my sin. That it's my sin that I need to focus on. It's my sin that I need to deal with. It's my sin that I need to care about. And Asa is doing this, and he's removing those things uh, from, from around him. He's removing that temptation. And then if you jump down to verse 9, this interesting thing begins to happen. Zerah, the Cushite, marched out against them with an army of thousands upon thousands and 300 chariots as far as uh, Maresha. Now, this is a terrible situation. Here, Asa's a young king, and he's got thousands upon thousands of men, soldiers, coming to destroy him, to take him out. And I want you to notice what Asa does. Um, notice what Asa does. It says, uh, and uh, if you jump down, it says uh, in verse 11, Then Asa called to his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you. Asa had this deep dependence on God where he says, God, like we rely on you. Like we need your help, Lord. This isn't about me trying to protect myself in my own strength. If you back up a few verses, it tells how big Asa's army was. Asa had over a half a million people in his army. Over a half a million Asa could have easily pulled his troops together and said, hey, let's go take them out. Let's go destroy them. But he didn't. He went straight to the Lord. And he began to talk to God. And he began to ask God to step in and intervene. Asa realized that the victory was only going to happen if God gave them the victory. And students, I think this. I think that we drift when we think that the victory is in our strength. We begin to drift when we think the victory is in our strength. Man, I can do it. Man, I can, I can turn my life around. I can fix myself. Yeah, that's not a problem for me. Like, I got this. And Asa knew, hey, man, I don't got this. Even though I have half a million soldiers, if God's favor is not on this, we're not going to make it. And I see so many people in their life trying to get victory over certain sins and certain things in their life, and they're never going to get that victory apart from God intersecting their life and helping them through that time in their life. And so what happens is God intervenes, God uses Asa and his men, and they destroy the Cushites. In fact, it says that they never, the Cushites never recovered as a people group after this moment. They wiped them out, and God protected them. Now, I want you to notice this because there's a shift in the story. And the shift is this. Two chapters later in chapter 16, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn over to chapter 16 right there. Just flip a page. It might be on the same page there. 
And we're going to look at chapter 16, verse 1. I want you to notice the shift. It has been peace for a while now among the people, and then war breaks out again. He's being attacked again. Notice what it says. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah, fortified Ramah, to prevent anyone from leading or leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. So here's the picture. Everything's been going well. Everything's been going great. And this king of Israel mounts up his soldiers. They block off the route so no one can go into Judah or out of Judah. They build a fortified city, and they are about to attack, attack King Asa. Now, King Asa has been here before. When he was a kid, he saw the king before him lean on God, and God intervened. He himself is led that way and allowed God to intervene. But this is later in his kingship, 36 years in. He's not a spring chicken anymore. The last time he was attacked was many, many, many years ago. And I want you to notice how his response changes. It says, Asa then took the silver and gold of the treasury of the Lord's temple. In other words, he went to the Lord's temple and money and treasury that was given as offerings to God. He took those out of the temple and of his own palace and he sent it to Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Basically, this is what he did. Instead of going to God, he went and took the money from the Lord's temple that was given as offering to the Lord. He took money from his own house, and then he went and he gave it to a pagan king to help fight the battle for him. Instead of going to God, he went to man. He went to something else. And we see that in this situation, we see that in this situation, he's stepped out of line. Something has drifted in Asa over the last 36 years. Used to, he had this strong relationship with God. He was willing to do anything, and he would go to God saying, God, I'm powerless. I can do nothing without you. And now, it's like God is a distant thought to him. And I don't know what it was. I don't know what got him to this point. Maybe it was success. Maybe it was after the last battle when he got back, people were holding him up on their shoulders, and they were praising him for the great job that he has done as king. And, and his credibility amongst the people began to raise. And people were talking about how amazing he was as a king. And he let it go to his head and he began to get prideful. He began to think that the victory was actually not God's victory, but his victory. In fact, there's a quote uh, by, uh, by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones that, that says this. And I, I love this quote. And if you are a young person in this room, you need to listen to this. And this is something for me, something for all of us. He says this. The worst thing that can happen to a man is to succeed before he is ready. The worst thing that can happen to a man is to succeed before he is ready. Because we let pride go to our head. We begin to think that it's all about us. We begin to think that we're invincible because we've won. And maybe that's what happened, or maybe it was sin, but what we know is uh, that he began to drift. And I want you to notice what happened in verse 7 of chapter 16. At that time, Hanani, the seer, or prophet, that's a prophet, came to Asa, the king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Aaron, of Aram, and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aaron has escaped your hand. So I want you to picture what happens. This prophet comes, to, uh, comes over to Asa, and he says, bro, you screwed up. And he calls him out. He says, he says hey, man, like, what have you done? Last time you went to God, and this time you went to the king of Aram. God's favor is not on you because that's what you did. Now listen, he could have responded like David and repented like when David was confronted by Nathan, turned back to God, but he didn't do that. He had the prophet thrown into prison. 
Then he begins to oppress the people. And then he gets this disease in his feet. His health starts to deteriorate. And in the midst of all of this, as his life is crashing down around him because of his drift, I want you to notice what happens in verse 12. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, listen to this, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Even in the later years of his life, even in this desperate place that he was in, he would not turn back to God. And the story ends with him dying. There's a story told by this guy named Billy Norris. It's a true story. And he talks about these two guys who went fishing out on a river. And, and they're fishing out on the river. They're buddies. It's a river in their hometown. They're really familiar with it. And they're out there fishing. And, and as they're fishing on the river, uh, they're just paying attention to fishing. They're talking and they're just laughing and they're having a good time together. And they weren't paying attention. But as they're drifting in the river, the current began to take them downstream. And downstream is a dam. And so as they begin to drift downstream and head towards this dam and they're fishing and they're just not really paying attention, all of a sudden they begin to hear the noise of the water rushing over the dam. And when that happens, they, they look and they're alarmed and they, they pull out their paddles and they begin to paddle. The problem is, is that at the closer you get to the dam, the more rapid the water is and the water was too powerful for them to be able to row out of it and they went over the dam and it cost both of them their life. Pretty sad story. And I think there's some observations from that that I think are applicable to our life. The first is this, when you stop rowing, you drift. Somewhere along the way, Asa stopped growing, he stopped seeking God, he stopped pursuing God, and he began to drift. The second thing is, you can control your boat as long as it's a long distance from danger. It's what we talked about earlier. Hey man, I got this. It's all good. It doesn't control me. I control it. And the more you get into it, the rapids begin to pick up and you go over the edge. And there's a point where turning around won't happen. You notice that Ace is at the end of his life and he does not turn back to God. It's not that he couldn't turn back to God. It's that he would not turn back to God. It's not that he couldn't. He wouldn't. And students, this is what I'm telling you, man. This is what I want to challenge you with. I know that there's some of us in this room, many of us in this room, that maybe you've drifted. Maybe you've just drifted a little bit. Maybe you're way down the river. Maybe you're pretty close to the rapids. And God's saying, hey, man, I'm here. Hey, I'm here, man. I got forgiveness for you. I got love for you. Like, like I want to help you in your life. And, and you've been drifting. And the question isn't, can God save you? Can God help you? The question is, will you allow him? Will you reach out to him? Will you recognize your need for him? See, Asa decided in his pride that he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't reach back to God, that he would do things on his own. And I found this, that no one ever drifts to God. We always drift into sin. And I want to show you something I think is really important. I want you to see this. I want to explain it to you so that you can see it. But it's called the drift cycle. I'm going to explain to you how we drift. Let me show it to you. We're going to put it up on the screen. I'm going to explain it real quick. So pay attention. You see right here where it says God, success, drift, and sin. Let me show you what happens. We all start in sin. 
And, uh, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us have. We all have junk in our life and stuff in our life. And this is where we start. And one day, we realize that, God, I can't do this on my own. I realize that my life is nothing apart from you. God, I realize that you saved me. I realize you died on the cross for me. I realize you raised from the dead, defeating sin and death. And no longer do I need to let sin have victory over my life. And so what we do is we give our lives to God. And God begins to work in our heart. And this, this space between God and success is the growth space. And we begin to grow. And we're growing our relationship with God. And as we grow, God begins to deal with character issues in our life. And he begins to deal with certain things. And as a result of that, we begin to see success in our life. Success in things like our relationships with our friends, our relationships with our parents. And God begins to work that stuff out in us. Success begins to happen because God's favors on our life. And then we have a choice to make in that moment. When we get success, we can say, God, I just want to give you the glory for that. God, I praise you for that. And we can turn our attention back to God. But what many times happens is, is that we begin to look at ourselves and we begin to drift. And we start to drift. And then we get to this drift space and we begin to drift and drift and drift. And then we fall into sin. And because we're believers, because we love God, because God's intersected our life, we begin to have conviction about that. We're like, God, I know where I want to be, but God, I know I'm where I'm not supposed to be. And so we begin to ask God, God, would you help me? God, would you work in my heart? And, and we begin to repent of our sin. Repentance would be between sin and God. And so we repent of our sin. We turn back to God. And then the cycle begins to go, and God begins to work in our heart, and we begin to grow. And then, and then things start happening, and then we begin to drift back into sin. And then, and then we give it over to God. Conviction comes in, and then this pattern begins to happen. And this is what happens over time. We get to this place where we find ourselves in this sin spot, and we've been through this cycle multiple times, and we start saying this, God, how come you're not helping me? God, how come I keep ending up here all the time? It seems like, God, no matter what I do, I just keep drifting back into sin. And versus looking at ourselves and seeing the pattern and seeing that we're contributing, we say, God, you're the problem. It's your fault. And so instead of giving it to God, we begin to drift. So we go from sin back to drift, and then we drift back into more sin, and we drift back into deeper sin, and we drift back into deeper sin, and this pattern continues, and we keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. I've seen this happen so many times in so many people's lives, and it dismantles us. And when you get to this cycle, it begins to undo you. It begins to undo you. When you get to that cycle, you don't listen to anyone. So, how do I defend against drift? That's the question. What do I do with this? How do I, as a believer in Jesus, defend against drift? Well, I'm going to tell you. The first is this. You respect the warning signs. The first is you respect the warning signs. The first warning sign is this. A, diminished, a diminishing desire for God's word and prayer. That's one of the warning signs. Hey, man, I, I was spending time with God. And I was having a relationship with him. I was in the word. I was praying. I was spending time with him. And, and that desire has begun to diminish in my life. When you see that begin to diminish in your life, listen, you are on your way to drifting. You're drifting. You say, well, I gave my life to Jesus, but I've never been in the word of God. I've never been in the Bible. I've never spent time in prayer. Listen, listen. You're drifting. You need to talk to somebody about next steps. You need to talk to somebody about what it looks like to get in the Bible, to spend some time with him on a daily basis. 
If you're not spending daily time with God or, or time with God at all throughout the week and it's just a, a pop into church here and there whenever you want to, listen, listen, you're drifting. You're going to drift. You must be connected to God's word. You must be connected to him. The second thing is this, a diminishing, a diminishing desire to be with God's people. A diminishing desire to be with God's people. Listen, let me tell you what happens. What happens is, is that, uh, uh, and, and what I would say in this is, is this is a diminishing desire to be in church, to be in H12, to, to be in a small group. When, when those desires begin to diminish, you're drifting. Like I said before, people don't just stop going to church. They, they, begin, to, they begin to just kind of get caught up in other things, and they just begin to kind of step away. It's a diminishing desire to be with God's people. God's called us to be with each other. We keep each other accountable. We build each other up. That's an important part of our relationship with him. I think attendance is one of the first indicators of drift. And we can make excuses. Hey, man, I got sports. I got work. I got schoolwork. Like, I got a bunch of stuff going on in my life. And here's the truth. There are students that come here every single week that play every sport at their high school, and they make it a priority. There's students that come here every single week that work every single week. There's students that come here every single week that have multiple AP classes and as much homework as you have. We can use whatever excuse we want to make while we begin to disconnect and drift from church and God and all these things. But at the end of the day, all they are is excuses. Now, that sounds harsh, and that sounds heavy, and that sounds like a punch in the mouth. But sometimes we need somebody to tell us the truth. See, the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, for all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful in teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Sometimes the Word of God is used for teaching, sometimes for correction, sometimes for rebuke, and sometimes for training. And sometimes we just need to get real and we need to have somebody have a conversation with us. Sometimes we need someone like the prophet Hanani who stepped in and said something to Asa to step into our life and begin to speak some truth. And give us a little bit of rebuke. You need to know the warning signs. The third is an increased desire for the things of the world. An increased desire for the things of the world. And so this is what it looks like. I'm not spending time with God. I've separated myself from my small group. I'm not going there anymore. And I've just come to church whenever, sometimes, maybe, or I don't go at all. And then I'm hanging out with people and I'm doing stuff in the world all the time. And there's a desire to do that stuff all the time. Listen, you are drifting if these things become a part of your life. Those are the warning signs. Now, number one, respect the warning signs. Number two, remember your story. Remember your story. How do you defend against drift? Remember your story. Faith is a process. I love what C.S. Lewis says. I think we got to put it up on the screens. He says this. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief, meaning Christianity, nor any other belief will automatically remain alive in our mind. It must be fed. That's why we have to be in his word. And as a matter of fact, if you examined 100 people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would have turned out to have reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? This is what he's saying. 
Most people don't lose faith in God because someone gives them this incredibly intelligent argument against God and faith. The reason people walk away from God in Christianity oftentimes is because they've drifted and they get to this place like Asa had where it's not that they can't turn back, it's just they won't turn back. Their pride won't let them. They're caught in the cycle of drift. Man, I'm passionate about this if you can't tell because I've seen so many students lose it because they don't understand this. Students, I, I care about you. Our leaders care about you. We pray for you all the time. It breaks our heart when we know you're hurting. It breaks our heart when we see things happening in your life that are dismantling your life. It breaks our heart because we care. And God cares. And he gives us this amazing story to show us this. Remembering was a huge part Remembering was a huge part of Jesus and a huge part of the early, the, the, you know, the early church and the early, early you know, throughout the scripture. It was all about remembering the scriptures and remembering who God was. And listen, Asa forgot his story. He forgot the story of when he defeated the army the last time. He's forgotten the stories of what God has done throughout Israel in their history. And sometimes we need to remember our story. I think about my story when I gave my life to Christ every time I see a baptism. July 14th, 1998, when I prayed to receive Christ and God changed my life and the trajectory of my life forever. I think about my salvation every time I pray to God. I thank him for it almost every time in my personal time with God. God, that's how I started. God, thank you for my salvation. Because I know what he's rescued me from. He's rescued me from me. He's rescued me from my sin. He's rescued me from this. I don't have to be defeated by sin anymore. He's given me the victory in him. And if I don't constantly remind myself of that, I can begin to drift. And the last one is this. Receive rebuke. I mentioned it just a minute ago. Sometimes we need a friend to call us out in love. We just do. And listen, you can be like Asa and, 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 uh, and, uh, and you know, throw him in prison, cut them off, shut them down. Or you can say, you know what, my friend loves me, my friend cares about me, and you receive it, and you do something about it. And maybe your friend needs to rebuke you, and maybe tonight this is this message and God's word and what we're talking about tonight, maybe it's, maybe it's coming from me tonight. But sometimes we need to be challenged. 